Hey everyone, we hope you're having a great week. My name is Eric Johnson, and along with my wife Candace, we are the lead pastors of Studio. We are based in Greenville, South Carolina, and we just want to take a moment and say hello and say thanks for listening to this podcast. So with that, let's get right to it. Um, I, I want to help you today. So you're going to have to let me help you. Look at your neighbor and say, Eric really wants to help you today. So this is how you can let me help you, by getting your phones out or getting a piece of paper and pens out or laptops or tablets or iPad, any device, because today is a day that you're going to want to jot down notes. Now, I know some of you are great at mental notes, but let's be honest, not everyone is, okay? So I want to encourage you to take note today because the next few weeks are going to be unique in this way. They're going to be more teaching-based, and I want to walk through some stuff that I believe will help us as a community of people that love Jesus move forward together. And so I want you to let me help you. Can we do that today? So take notes, and if I was really had my act together, I would have a beautiful keynote but that's not my style. I like, to, I like to challenge you to make your own internal keynotes and take your own notes. And we'll have this on podcast, but don't let that be a cop-out to not take notes today. But I want to talk today about something that's really um, it's important to me. Obviously, I'm praying it's important to you. Some teachings are to the heart. Some teachings are to your soul. Other teachings are to your head. And today is going to be a lot to your head, but believe it or not, it might be one of the most spiritual messages you ever hear. At least, I hope so. And when Kenneth and I moved across the country, when we were trying to develop a plan of like, how many days should we take? The U-Haul was ridiculously priced. It was triple the price to bring a U-Haul from California to South Carolina. We looked up the same U-Haul to get from South Carolina to California. It was a third of the price. And what that means is more U-Hauls were leaving California than U-Hauls were leaving South Carolina. So we were like on a time clock with this U-Haul. We're like, how fast can we get to the East Coast in our U-Haul when we were moving? And we like got the map out. We'll try to make it to this city and this city. But we basically just started each day with, let's just drive as much as we can handle one day. Then we'll just grab a hotel, wherever that may be. So this message is actually going to be spread out out of over numerous weeks. And I say that because I love you and I like you and I don't want to kill you in one day. I want to softly kill you over a period of a few weeks. So you're welcome. So let me help you today. So I, I, I have a goal to get to. There's a hotel I have in mind that I want to arrive at by the end of today. But in case we don't get there, there's another hotel that's closer that we might end at. And then we'll pick it up next week. So the next few weeks are going to be like that. Actually, believe it or not, I've done this in one setting. But I, I did it twice. And I learned our brains cannot burn that many calories. So, I love you. So that's what today is about. But let's pray first. I want to pray for today that I actually feel this is um, an important message for where we're at and where we're headed. So, Father, I thank you for what you're doing in this space. I thank you for what you're doing in each of our lives and the people that we're sitting next to that we're doing life with. And I pray for every person in this room would be able to answer this question in this season of their life. I'm doing life with these people. These people know me. They're walking with me. They're running with me. And I am walking with them and running with them. And today, I just pray for an extreme clarity today. I pray for everything that's communicated. God, you promised that the Holy Spirit would remind us of anything that you've taught. 
And you said also in Scripture that the Holy Spirit will teach us the ways of Jesus. And so today, I want to partner with you, Holy Spirit, and what's being taught today to help each of us move farther in our walk together, not as isolated human beings, but as a unit of people that are passionate about the ways of Jesus. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. As we read the Gospels in the New Testament, we, we are learning about the life and the beginnings of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are what we call the gospel. This is the story of the life of Jesus. And that's the first four books of what we call the New Testament. The first half, not technically 50%, but the first part of the Bible is what we call the Old Testament, which can also be called the Old Covenant. So in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are placed within the scripture, it was actually the introduction of what we call the New Covenant which means the old covenant is no longer the primary covenant, the no primary definer of our relationship with something transcendent. In our case, it's with God. And the new covenant is a picture, it's an introduction to the plan that God has had all along, and that was to redeem humanity back to its place with him. So we read about the life of Jesus. We read about how he was born, and we follow him to roughly about 12 years old. And then from 12 years old to approximately around 30 years old, there's not a lot written there. But what we do know that he grew up as a man, he grew up in stature, and he grew in wisdom and in favor with man and with God. So he basically grew up between the age of 12 to the age of 30. Around the age of 30, he went into what's called a 40 days of temptation, where the devil himself tempted Jesus in a variety of different ways. Jesus gets to the end of those 40 days of fasting and obviously praying and resisting all the temptation that the devil could throw at him. And he was successful in the sense that he never gave into temptation. He always had a reply to the enemy that was trying to attack him and take away what, who he was and what he was about. So he comes out of the 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, and he comes out and he begins what we call and scholars call his public ministry. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are essentially that about his life all the way up until his death, and not just his death on the cross, but his resurrection. Now, once we get to the end of John and we get into the book of Acts, the book of Acts is an exciting book because it starts to cover bigger periods of time. Now, in case you are wondering, the New Testament only covered the first 95 years of what we call the early church. Now, the early church is actually roughly around a 300-year period of time. So, roughly 0 to 300 AD is what we call the early church. And today I want to unpack a little bit of history, and I don't really have a title yet. I'll probably have it by the end of this talk, but the working title that I'm working with is, How Did We Get Here? Say to yourself, how did we get here? Nobody said it to yourself. Okay, that's awkward. But anyways, in a book titled Constantine in Rome, we can read, let me read these excerpts, it's a paragraph. In the view of the Romans in the first two centuries of the empire, Christianity was an unauthorized and repugnant branch of Judaism. As a consequence of the Jewish revolt, the Romans destroyed the temple of Jerusalem and canceled the name of the city from the map. The Christians seemed more like a conspiracy. They adored a leader, Jesus, who had been executed as a subversive and likely revolutionary. 
Their rights were secret, but in public they affected a snobbish purity and when pressed often defied common sense by enthusiastically embracing martyrdom, end of quote. So whenever we hear about the early church, we're actually referring to the first 300 years and the scriptures give a sneak peek to roughly the first 95 years of that period of time. The reason I want to talk about this is because we have to understand the early church was greatly persecuted and mocked. It's comical today to hear about how the church is persecuted today. It's comical because it's not true. If you were to take the resistance we have, even in America right now, it is comical and it's literally naive and ignorant to say we're under persecution. So I just want to make that clear. It doesn't mean there isn't resistance, because there clearly is. There is some form of an attack on our belief. That, I believe, is true. But to put it in the category of persecution, we are very naive and ignorant to even take it that far. So I want to say this because we need to do our homework. We need to understand the persecution and the resistance that the early church endured to see you and I be in the spot we're in today as followers of Jesus. We have to understand this because the early church was actually a very grassroots movement. It was on the fringe. It was considered a sect. It was considered something that was unorthodox. It didn't fit into any paradigm. And so the early church was not an accepted religion at all. Christianity was considered opposite of anything normal. And so we have to ask, how do we get to this space today? How do we get to here? There's a North African apologist named Tertullian. He's a scholar, recorded lots of the early church history. He made this statement. He said, thou art not a Christian as far as I know, for as a rule, the soul is not born a Christian. It becomes a Christian. That statement speaks to the fervency of the early church, that they were passionate about the good news of Jesus. They were so passionate that they were seeing people get saved by the hundreds and the thousands. And we get snippets of that in the book of Acts. So the apologist Tertullian begin to say, people begin to realize you're not born a Christian. You ask you give your life to Jesus to become a Christian. This was happening at such a rate, it was blowing the minds of society in that moment and in that day. In Matthew 13, verse 33, it says this. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. So Jesus actually begins to use this concept. I think it's beautiful. And this is what Jesus was brilliant at. He was able to take everyday situations and examples and use it to describe the kingdom. And he said, you and I are like leaven. We get worked into the dough. And you know what leaven does? It raises the ingredients. It takes something that was flat bread and it gives it life and substance. So leaven, much like yeast, when you apply yeast and leaven to flour and water, when you apply it, over time it raises, it takes something flat and ordinary and makes it extraordinary. And Jesus said, that's you and me. We are leaven. When we get worked into the dough, we take it from flat and ordinary, and we take humanity to another space where it's extraordinary in what it was designed to actually be. I want you to understand that because Jesus actually taught a gospel that said, you have to be leaven in culture. This is what you're designed. My good news is designed to put you within the lives of humanity. 
It's not designed just to be within a four-walled structured building. It's actually designed to be in everyday life. So the early church embraced this. There was no like, should we gather? They were gathering. They were doing all those things. But there was such an emphasis on being leavened in the world, being leavened in the dough of culture, being leavened in the cities that they lived in and occupied. This was actually the gospel, the good news of the gospel. So we learned that when Christians get persecuted, it actually multiplies the church. In Australia, some years ago, I don't remember exactly, it was quite a few years ago, in Australia, they had a problem with too many starfish that were on the barrier reefs. And there was too many of them, it was actually creating a, it was throwing the ecosystem off balance. So they got together and said, we need to, we need to manage the amount of starfish that taking place and reproducing. So they thought, why don't we go down, dive down, and take all the starfish, and let's cut them in half, and let's kill them. Let's reduce the population of starfish to get rid of it. Well, what they didn't know, they actually doubled the population in one night, because starfish have no central nervous system. And when you cut a starfish in half, you just made two. You see, we're much like a starfish. You can take one of us out, but you ain't gonna take all of us out. When my, our gospel works that way because you tried to kill Jesus, but he came back to life. So there's nothing you can do to stop the gospel. There's nothing you can do. In fact, the fastest growing churches in the world today are in the most oppressed nations in the world. Why? Because the more you persecute the church, the more it flourishes. So I'm not happy about the resistance in America right now, but I'm actually thankful in some regard because actually letting us know, do we really have faith or not? We'll get to that later. I jumped ahead. We went to the hotel too quick. This is why in Iran, they consider the fastest growing church in the world right now is in Iran. Why? It's the most, one of the most oppressed, religiously oppressed nations in the world. So just understand that this God that lives inside of us, this gospel, this good news thrives in persecution. Now, you might not like persecution, but guess what? Your gospel does. Your gospel is like, bring it on. We're only going to multiply. So let's, let's go a little deeper, though. Let's ask the question, why behind the why? Why is behind the why that the Roman Empire persecuted the early church? Let's get to that. Let's help to understand. We understand they're persecuted, and some of you may never knew that. Today is a good day for you because you're learning that your origins of your faith, if you follow Jesus, actually flourished and exploded because of the persecution from the Roman Empire, like true persecution. But let's ask the question, why did they persecute Christians? Not just because that they had faith in God. It was because the Roman Empire, they... They accredited a lot of their success to their ability to embrace multiple gods. Their culture and society, their worldview, their paradigm had many deities and many gods. There was never one god. In fact, their emperors became deities. And so their worldview involved a bunch of deities and a bunch of gods. And here you have the early church saying there's only one god. 
And it did not fit with the Roman Empire, the Roman worldview. It did not fit at all. And that did not work. So when we say Jesus is Lord today, it's a powerful statement. But to say Jesus is Lord or there's one God in this context in the first 300 years of the early church, you basically became anti-Roman. You became anti-Roman worldview, anti-Roman values, anti-Roman culture. You became opposite and opposing force within the Roman context. So persecution came because you had an opposite worldview than the view that you actually lived in. So the Roman persecuted the early church. It got so bad that persecution was sanctioned. It was permitted. It was encouraged. And it came out in anti-rhetoric literature. It came out by taking all their possessions and buildings. So if you were a Christian back in this day, your buildings were taken from you, your property, your assets, your rights, your will, everything was taken from you. So we're talking extreme persecution. So let's, um, I'm going to read a couple verses to you. Romans 10, 9, write this down. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, it reads this. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue that acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God of the Father. Scholars tell us to say that Jesus is Lord or that there's one God. It was the most revolutionary counterculture thing you could say. So to give your life to Jesus and to actually say there's only one God is one of the most boldest statements you could ever make. And that's something that we don't even understand the gravity and the depth in an American Western context. But this is the context of the early church. So over the next 300 years, the church suffered incredible persecution. There's some great books out there to learn more about this. There were moments in the first 300 years of the early church where there was some reprieve, but it wasn't until around 313 AD that something happened drastically that changed the entire landscape of Christendom. Two emperors got together. One name was Constantine and the other one was Licinius. One of them ruled the East, and one of them ruled the West. They came together. Now, there are different theories and ideas of why they wrote this letter, and it's not completely understood. I think it's safe to say it was a political move on so many levels because there were so many Christians. It was multiplying and multiplying. They were becoming a force that you couldn't stop. They say, if you can't beat them, just join them. So perhaps... The empire realized, well, we can't beat them, so we might as well partner with them. So they wrote a decree and a letter that's called the Edict of Milan. Now, the word edict actually means a decree. The Edict of Milan was a letter that basically embraced Christianity overnight as a state religion. Now, this changes the landscape. So all of a sudden, one day you're being persecuted. Constantine was your greatest advocate of persecution. And the next day he became your greatest supporter of your religion. Imagine the paradigm shock and awe, like what's happening? All the assets that were taken from us for the last 300 years are now given back to us. So the entire landscape of Christendom changed because of one letter. 
So what was allowed one day in persecution would no longer allow the next day. This took place in about 313 AD, written by two letters from, uh, sorry, two emperors, Constantine and Licinius. They signed the Edict of Milan. Now you might be sitting here, so what's the big idea? This changes the entire grassroots movement. All of a sudden, Christianity moved from a grassroots fringe in culture and society. You can read early documents. The early church was so engaged in cities and culture. They were in the marketplaces. They were in the field. They were in the home. They were literally everywhere. And all of a sudden, when it became a state religion, they all began to gather in buildings. What we see over the centuries that follow is the relationship between church and state became front and center. They supported each other. In many ways, this right here, the relationship between church and state, determined the way life happened. It changed how cities planned out their cities. It changed culture. It changed society. In some cases, king and queen became head of the church. This is why when you go to Europe now and you go to some of these old medieval cities, what's in the center and the tallest structure in that building is what? In that city, it's cathedrals. Because it was prominent. Christendom was the center of society. So we went from a fringe grassroots movement into an embraced religion that had a marriage with the state. Now, you'll see this all across Europe. There's a great book. If you like to read about these topics, there's a great book called The Shaping of Things to Come. It's written by Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch. They say the, this is their response to the effect of this letter that was written in Milan. They say it this way. Overall, Christianity moved from being a dynamic, revolutionary social and spiritual movement to being a religious institution with its attendant structures, priesthood, and sacraments. Are you guys still with me? I know you're burning calories, so hang in there with me. This is important because this helped to give us insight of how we got here. As this developed over the next 17 centuries to modern day, we now have a dynamic where we have a dualistic approach to being the church. Instead of a singular approach, we now have a dualistic approach. So the idea of secular and sacred emerged because of the Edict of Milan, the results of that. So now we have people in this room, and myself is a part of my own journey, my own walk of faith, is recognizing I have divided life into what's secular and what's sacred. That entire construct is a result of the last 17-ish centuries. So we approach life where this is sacred and that's secular. That whole construct was foreign to the early church. That entire construct, there was never this idea like what's spiritual and what's not. And today, we've now drummed down our faith to this is spiritual and this isn't. That's a result of the last many centuries of thought. And I feel like we need to recapture. We're not going backward, but we need to recapture the essence and figure out how do we move forward. So after the Edict of Milan, the landscape of the church changed where we began to remove ourselves from the place of culture and we moved to a building and we developed an in here and out there paradigm. We came up with words like us and them. And yet Jesus says, you're leaven in the dough. We've taken the leaven and we're just hanging out with other leaven. 
And so what we've done in, in the organization of church is, well, to be out there, let's organize a Saturday outreach. Now, I'm all about Saturday outreaches. But the problem with that is we have to have someone else organize it for us. And so we reduce leaven to, hey, you organize it for me, and then I'll show up because it's outside the walls of the church, and let's do something beautiful together. And guess what? We will always do those. I love doing those. I think they're powerful. I think they're beautiful. But to think that is how we reach the world and get in culture is just shallow. It's short. It, it, it doesn't actually carry the essence of what it means to be in culture. Whenever you have an us and them paradigm, you always put yourself in the superior position. It's us and them. Well, I'm always the best, of course. Uh, and everything I am is superior to how you think, how you live. And so we approach with very condescending. We approach from a very, I'm up here, you're down here. And if I remember correctly, leaven is meant to raise. It's meant to elevate. It's meant to bring life into something that's flat and ordinary. It's meant to make something that is practically nothing and make it extraordinary. That's our role. Now, it doesn't mean there's not a battle of evil and good. Believe it. There, if you're asking, is there a different? Is there a battle of good and evil? A thousand percent, as Reva would say. So please don't think that I'm saying we do away with the concept of good and evil. But if I remember correctly, the only way to overcome evil is with good. If you think overcoming evil is acting in the same mode as the evil mode, you're only going to exacerbate the evil. Okay. So the us and them paradigm has now become a foundation of thought within the church. It shaped our paradigm and how we engage with people outside of our belief systems, outside of our faith. And so we've elevated ourselves and we love talking down. In 1 John verse four, chapter four, verse four, it says this, you dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So a question to ask ourselves, are we more aware of the darkness and evil in the world than who actually lives in us? If you're more aware of what's happening in the world in, this, in the context of evil, more than who actually lives in you, then your attention needs to have some adjustments. You need to reduce your intake of what's happening in the world and increase your awareness, your understanding, and long for experiences with the one that is greater than the world. It's about the whole earth, guys. It's not just about the person you're sitting next to. And that's not a devaluing comment at all. It's about the whole earth. It's about seeing Jesus actualized through you. There's an author, his name is Clark Pinnock. He makes these statements in one of his books. He said, the main rationale of the church is to actualize all implications of the baptism of the Spirit. He also said, Jesus is the prototype of the church. 
T.D. Jake said once, he said, if Jesus were to come today, we would have to teach him church. The Spirit indwells the church at the perpetual Pentecost. If you're unfamiliar with the word Pentecost, it's the word that we use within our faith to describe the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's not just a one-time thing. It's a perpetual coming of the Spirit of God in our life. I believe we are to recapture and embody being like Jesus in culture, where it draws humanity to the Father. Studio's end game is not designed to be an escape from the world. Now, if it is an escape, I'm happy about that. I really am. Because some of us just need a reprieve from the chaos and confusion. But I want you to know that's not our end game. Our end game is not to become isolated and to become only a space where you can have a reprieve from chaos and confusion. That's not the end game. It's going to be part of it because that's what we are. That's what families do. We become a space for each other where we can be. And some of you, that's where you're at in, this, in your journey of faith right now, life experience. I just need a place to be, and that's great. I'm glad, I'm glad this is the space for you. It's designed to be a place where you meet God, to do life on life with people, and you dream about cities and culture. You dream about what would it be like if we really are leavened, worked into the dough of culture. What could that look like? It is designed to be a Joshua where you love the presence of God, but you're thinking about cities and culture. You dream about humanity being redeemed, restored, and healed. You intelligently learn to engage with the reality of good and evil, and you are driven by overcoming evil with good. The driving narrative today is everything outside of your opinions is evil. Let me say this again. The driving narrative that is driving conversation today, anything that's outside of my opinions and views is now evil. Why do we do that? Because once you demonize something that you don't like, you now are justified in your actions against that person or situation. And this is what we do. We all tell ourselves a story we want to be told. Are you guys still with me? I know we're getting to the hotel soon. I promise you, we're getting there. But there's a little bit more gas in the tank. The driving narrative right now, you are celebrated if you can label something evil and attack it. You're celebrated for it. You're applauded for it. You're retweeted for it. Guys, that's not the driving narrative that works the kingdom. The kingdom is not looking to who to demonize so you can now attack them with spiritual language. It doesn't mean you don't confront sin. It doesn't mean that you don't acknowledge that there's sin in the world. You don't, it doesn't mean, but the way you deal with sin with brothers and sisters in the Lord, it's different than how you deal with sin outside of your brothers and sisters in the Lord. The way I would deal with Jeremy or the way Jeremy deals with me in an area of sin would be handled as Christians handle it. It's unique because of the foundation of our faith in a man who died and paid the price so we could be restored and redeemed. 
So the interaction, the confrontation, the pointing out, and if this doesn't work, Jeremy grabs somebody and they both confront me. The Bible actually lays out a beautiful process of redemption. But when it comes to humanity, it's a bit different. Because you're dealing with people that don't have the foundation of faith that you have. They have a very different foundation. So our approach to that is slightly different. And I think sometimes we're using a hammer for everything. History has taught us that the rise of resistance can actually help you in your faith. So even living today, I want to challenge you not to embrace the idea that secularism is taking over culture. I'm not asking you to say to throw in the towel, so to speak, but I am asking you to say this. Find out if your faith is real. Find out is it actually real or is my, is my tree can it be knocked over by the elements that are coming? Are my roots not deep enough? Jesus said... The Holy Spirit will tell you what to do in these moments. Some of us are in situations right now and we don't know what to do because they're culturally complex. Guess what? Jesus said, hey guys, don't worry. The Holy Spirit will tell you what to say and what to do in those moments. A great man named Nate Edwardson said this. The goal isn't to gather everyone under one roof. The goal is to gather everyone under one father. Why don't you stand? You did great, by the way. We made it to the hotel, the first hotel. I think it's in Nebraska somewhere. No, no, this one's actually on the border of Utah and uh, Nevada. I want to pray. A lot was said today, and I have a sense that some of you, this is an introduction to a new paradigm. And maybe you were told or taught or just life experience has, has shaped you to retreat and hide and just make it. I don't want to disacknowledge there's times and spaces where you need a reprieve from chaos and confusion. But at its core design, the gospel is designed to be leavened in culture. It's designed to shape cities. It's designed to get into the hardest places. And if you give it enough time and space, and oxygen, guess what happened? It begins to rise. All of a sudden, a loaf of bread appears. Something that was flat and ordinary now becomes extraordinary. And each of you actually have wide open access wherever you are at in this region, in this city, in your company, in your home, in your friendship, to be leavened and to actually trust that God lives in you. And put that to the test. Some of us like to have all the answers before we engage. Sometimes you have to engage, then God shows up. So Father, I pray for every person in this room today that we'd understand at the core of our design, we were designed to be leavened in the dough. We were designed to be leavened within culture and city. We were designed to elevate and be a part of seeing humanity come into who you want them to be. And I pray today that for us in this room that are still working through an us and them paradigm or a secular and sacred paradigm or this, this 
inside, out there, pair, wherever we are at, I pray that there will be a grace right now to begin to bring those worlds back together and recognize there isn't an area in my life that isn't important to you to see the kingdom show up. And I pray that we would get a missional heart for our cities more than ever, for our places of work, that you would elevate the intelligence and the strategy of seeing your power come and your wisdom come into all of our environments. And I pray that the word missional would no longer just be a two-week trip somewhere. It would be every day of our life we recognize, oh wow, everywhere I go, I can elevate this space. I can take something ordinary and make it extraordinary. So Father, I bless every person here in their own journey of life experience and their faith. And ultimately, I pray they would be encouraged that you live within them. Thank you for listening, and we hope this talk benefits you in every way possible. For more information about Studio, you can go to studiogreenville.com or go to Instagram and look for studio.greenville. We would also love it if you would leave a review and hit those five stars. Other than that, have a great week and we'll see you soon.